All right, the uh, reading for today begins in John chapter 20, uh, verses 34 through, it says 34 through 29, but that's uh, 24 through 29. Uh, you can view this in your uh, Blue Pew Bible on page uh, 1652. Listen as I read God's word. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Second reading that we're going to be looking at today is from Revelation chapter 22, uh, verses 1 through 5 on page uh, 1892 in the Pew Bible. It says this, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal. Flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Here ends the reading. I do want to begin by saying thank you to everyone who actually wore an ugly sweater this morning. Uh, I have been waiting so long. I've actually had the sweater, if you can't see it, uh, it's Santa riding, I believe, a stegosaurus. My children who watch lots of uh, Dinosaur Train would easily be able to tell you what this is, but I don't know. Um, I've been waiting to wear this for a long time, and I've just never really gotten up the courage to do it. And so I figured the only way that I'm actually going to gather up the courage to do it is if I make everyone else do it too. And so because all of y'all have joined me in the absurdity of the ugly Christmas sweaters, I feel uh, confidence in wearing this today. I also uh, am wearing some special socks today. I have, uh, I have seasonal socks. Um, I've got a whole set of them that are uh, from the Christmas story, uh, if you know that movie. And so these ones have uh, little bars of soap on them, and they say, oh, fudge. So if you've seen that movie, you understand that. Uh, and I felt comfortable saying that because I saw someone else who was wearing a shirt, I think, that says, holy shnikes or something on it. <laughs> so anyways, all the holiday festivities, the Christmas goodness uh, is just, uh, just about more than we can handle. But I'm glad to be with you here today. As we look at this passage, uh, these few brief passages, I want to invite you to join me uh, for a word of prayer. Lord, we are grateful that you loved us and gave us your word. You have revealed yourself to us. You've given us your son, Jesus, that we celebrate this Christmas season. And God, we're so thankful for the abundance of generosity that you have poured out on us. Lord, we ask that as we 
approach Christmas this week, that you would cause our hearts to head into that uh, in the right place. Amidst all the festivities and all the treats and all the celebrations and the Christmas trees and the presents and all the just the fun, wonderful stuff that makes Christmas so enjoyable for us and the memories that we make. Lord, we ask that in the midst of all of that, that you would give us perspective and that you'd help us to remember what Christmas is all about. We ask that you'd help us as we look at these passages here today. Give us a clear picture of who Jesus is and would you cause us to leave here changed people, we ask in his name and all God's people said, amen. Well, we have been in a series of messages this Advent, and we've been looking at how the birth of Jesus is good news for us in our work. We have said this over and over again, that we are all working all the time. Some of us, our work is paid. Some of us, our work is unpaid. Some of us, our work is inside the home. Some of us, our work is outside the home. But no matter who you are, no matter what stage of life you're in, you are always doing things. You are always doing acts of work. And the good news is that the arrival, the birth of Jesus, is actually good news. It provides hope in the midst of our work. And so here's what we've been seeing over the course of these last number of weeks. Actually, I suppose I should probably stop there and mention, hey, we have Christmas Eve coming uh, this Saturday. (laughs) That's why you put the slide up there, because you remember it when you get to it. Christmas Eve, uh, this Saturday, 4 o'clock p.m., uh, we invite you to join us as we celebrate the birth of Jesus. There will not be a gathering next Sunday on Christmas Day, so please don't show up here, uh, but come to Christmas Eve. Uh, and if you'd like to invite friends, neighbors, family, there's some invitation cards that are out on the uh, table in the entryway. But with that, let's head back to where we were just a second ago. What we've been seeing so far in the series is this. The arrival of Jesus, it restores us to our true vocational calling. We are designed by God to work. Work is not a product of the fall, but work is a part of God's good design for us. And when we do good work, we reflect something of the nature and the image of God who is himself a worker. And so our work is uh, given to us by God. And because of what Jesus has done, we can begin to experience our work in a renewed way as we await his return to make all things new. The second thing that we saw is that the arrival of Jesus provides dignity for our ordinary work. Jesus spent 90% of his life in obscurity. Jesus spent 90, not 90%, he spent 18 years of his life not working in a temple, doing what we would consider to be the most religious or quote-unquote spiritual work. He spent 18 years of his life as an adult before his public ministry working not in the temple but working in the shop as an ordinary carpenter. And this gives so much value and dignity and honor to the ordinary work that we do on a day-in and day-out basis. Lastly, what we saw last week is that the arrival of Jesus provides hope-filled realism in our work. We all know this, that we don't experience work the way that work was designed. We experience a distortion, something of the twisting of work. Uh, We experience it as toilsome and difficult and hard, and it can be disillusioning disillusioning. It can be dehumanizing. It can be all of those things. But the arrival of Jesus makes it so that we don't give way to despair in the midst of that. There's a kind of hope-filled realism we can have in the midst of that because the sin that leads to the corruption of our work and the distortion of it, we are guaranteed through the birth and the life and the ministry of Jesus that that sin will not have the last word. And so we can have hope-filled realism in the midst of our work. And lastly, what we're going to see here today is this. The arrival of Jesus provides hope for the future of our work. 
In other words, our work is never wasted. There is never anything that you do, no matter how small, no matter how seemingly insignificant, no matter how tedious, no matter how grimy or grungy or dirty, no matter how distorted your experience of work may be, there is no work that you do or that you experience that will be, ever be wasted by God. And so there is hope for the future of our work. So let's look briefly at these two passages that you heard read uh, just a few moments ago. And the first one is where we see Thomas encountering the risen Jesus. We're told that Thomas was not with the disciples, the other disciples, when Jesus appeared to them initially. How would you like to be left out of that moment, right? But Thomas wasn't with them. And so as a result, Thomas didn't believe that Jesus has been, had been raised from the dead. And so Thomas says to the rest of the disciples exactly what you and I would have said if we were there in that moment. He says, I will believe it when I see it, right? So verse 25 He says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, Thomas is known as something of a doubter, right? And he is is a doubter. He is uh, kind of a cynic. You you can gather that from the other uh, accounts of what you see of his life in the Gospels. But I think in this particular case, we should go a little bit easy on Thomas. Um the Jewish people expected that at the final judgment, all people would be raised and resurrected to life at the final judgment. But there was no Jewish hope or expectation that one man in the middle of history would be raised to a new glorified new creation body. Okay, So that just wasn't in the, the realm of thinking of the Jewish people. And so you can understand why Thomas would say, okay, this is so far outside the categories of anything that we're expecting. Yeah, I'll believe that when I see it. And so we can just go a little bit easy on Thomas here, even though he does have sort of an impulse of doubt in him. But Jesus encounters him. He's with the rest of the disciples about a week later. And Jesus appears to them in the room in, in, in the flesh. His physical body appears to them. And he comes to Thomas and he says this in verse 27. Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. So the resurrected Jesus appears to Thomas and says, take your finger and put it into the place where the nails pierced my hands. Put your hand into my side where the spear went in and pierced me. Now we would expect, wouldn't we, that someone who endured what Jesus endured... Uh, the execution, the beating, and, and everything that he experienced with the, with the nails in his hands and the spear piercing his side, you would expect that someone who experienced that just about a week ago, that, that, would, you know, that you would see evidence of that. You would expect that if that person was merely resuscitated, right? Like if Jesus was you know, beaten within a half inch of his life and he was almost dead, but then he somehow pulled through in the end, you would expect that like, yeah, a week later, he still has got those scars in his hands and he's still got the nail, you know, the piercing on the side. You would expect that if he was merely resuscitated. And yet what we see is that Jesus here is not merely resuscitated. Jesus's physical body, his resurrected and glorified new creation body retains the scars and the holes where the nails went in and where his heart sack was punctured by a spear when they stabbed him. Don't miss the significance and the importance of this. Remember that when Mary meets Jesus at the tomb, 
just before this in chapter 20. She doesn't recognize who he is. She sees him, and and it's the same Jesus that she's always known, except she doesn't recognize him until he says her name. And he said her name with with, with the accent or with the intonation or with the, the way that Jesus said her name, that's when she realized, oh, this is Jesus. But she didn't recognize him at first because it was the same Jesus, but he was just different. His physical body was somehow the same and yet somehow radically different to the point where she didn't recognize him. And here in this text, we see the same thing. This is the same Jesus, but he is in a new, resurrected, glorified body, and that glorified body retains the scars of the execution. So his resurrected, glorified body, which right now in this moment has ascended to the right hand of the Father as he rules and reigns over all things, his resurrected, glorified body retains the evidence of the most unjust and egregious act of work that has ever been committed in the history of the world. The execution of the sinless, innocent Son of God. So somehow, that act of work carried through and echoes into eternity. And that's what we see with Thomas as he encounters Jesus. He retains the scars in his hands and feet. He retains the spear mark on his side, even in his resurrected, glorified body. So somehow, that act of work, even that awful act of work, somehow echoes into, carries into eternity. Then think with me uh, briefly about this passage we see in Revelation chapter 22, where we see Eden restored. And I think we see something of a similar pattern here. And what I want to just briefly highlight is something that uh, is easy for us to just overlook or not recognize the significance of. And that is that the new creation in the book of Revelation is depicted as a city. A city is the product of human work. A city is the product of human beings who are created in God's image to work. It's the product of them living out that creation mandate to multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue it to take all of the raw materials that were around them and to arrange them for the purpose of human flourishing as an act of worship. So what we see in the very beginning of the Bible in the garden, the garden of Eden is the place where God's presence dwells with his people. And it's a beautiful garden and it has everything that they need except it's uncultivated. And so part of the commissioning that God gives to humanity is to take what's in the garden and to arrange those things, to cultivate it, to work it, to to do work, And the byproduct of that would be that cities would be formed, that people who are created in God's image would work and they would use their creativity, they would use their ingenuity, they would use all of those faculties that God has given them, and part of the byproduct of that would be that cities are formed. And it's a part of what it means to be made in the image and the likeness of God. And this is what we see in the new creation. So in Genesis 1 and 2, we see this, this picture of God's presence dwelling with his people in the garden. And then all the way at the end of the story, we don't see that the, that the cities are erased and all of a sudden we're back in the garden again. At least not the way it was before. We see the coming together of these two images of the city and the garden. And now it is a garden city where God's people dwell for all of eternity in the presence of God. The city isn't just erased for the garden. No, there's a garden that is present in the middle of the city. 
And the city, which is the evidence of people living out the creation mandate. There's a garden in the middle of that. And all throughout the Bible, the language of Eden is used to depict God's presence with his people. So in the midst of this garden city, this city that is uh, the byproduct of human work, you've got the presence of God in this garden that is present in the middle of the city. And it's not that, that the city is somehow erased and we go back to the garden. It's that all of a sudden the city that, is, that, that we know is corrupted has been permeated by the presence of God with his people in the garden. And so we see these two images coming together where human cities are not erased, human cities are not replaced by a garden, but the garden, which is the place of God's presence, then fills the city. And so I think what we can take away from looking at both of these passages is that our work somehow carries through into the new heavens and new earth. And I'll be the first to tell you, I have absolutely not a clue how that works. So don't try and ask me like, hey, if I do this, you know, if I do this act of work, how is that going to translate into, I don't know. I don't have a clue. And yet, I think what we can see is that our work somehow carries through into the new heavens and new earth. What I want to suggest this morning is that in the kingdom of God, when his kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven, the brokenness and the corruption and the distortion of work as we experience it will not simply be erased. Now, Revelation tells us that there will be no more curse, that God's presence will finally and fully once again be with his people the way we're designed to be. But all the brokenness and the distortion of work as we experience it here and now will not just be done away with or erased. It won't be like waking up from a bad dream where you wake up and you say, boy, I'm glad that never really happened. You know, you wake up from a dream, whether something has, you know, been done to you or something's been done to someone you love or you, you know, your spouse did something dumb and you wake up and you're angry at your spouse, right? If you've had a moment like that. It won't be like waking up from a dream where all of a sudden we say, oh boy, I'm glad all that stuff with our work just never happened. I'm glad that the corruption of work as I experienced it was just a figment of my imagination. And now it's all just wiped away as if it never happened. Now to be sure, there will be no more corruption. There will be no more curse in the new heavens and new earth. And yet what I want to suggest this morning is that it's not going to be like just shaking an etch-a-sketch. Where all of a sudden there's all the, the stuff that's on there and you need to shake it and it's just all gone. No, I want to suggest that God is far more creative than that. Simply erasing the brokenness of human work is boring and predictable. God is far more creative and I think is doing something far better than that. We do not have a God who, can, who, who will simply just erase the toil and the difficulty of our work as if it never happened. Certainly he could do that. And yet what I think we see is that we instead have a God who doesn't just erase the corruption and the brokenness of our work, but who takes every last bit of it and folds it somehow into his long-term redemptive purposes. We have a God who takes every act of work that we do. It might be the most loving, the most servant-hearted, the most fruitful, the most beautiful thing you've ever done. It might be the most terrible thing that you've ever done that you wish more than anything you could undo. And yet you can't. 
We have a God who takes all of that work and doesn't just erase it as if it never happened. He does something better than that. He takes it and he somehow folds it into his long-term redemptive purposes. He takes even the most broken, corrupted act of work and somehow makes it turn out for the good of his saving purposes. And again, I'm not saying I have any idea how that works out. All I'm saying is that we know that's who God is. We can have confidence that this is what kind of God he is. And the proof is just by looking at the cross. As we look at the cross, what we see is that God's plan to deliver humans from the power and the corruption of sin, his plan A was to send his son to give his life in place of ours. So the father's plan didn't derail when Jesus accidentally got himself killed. You know, it's not as if God the father's up there like, Jesus, you weren't supposed to do that. And now I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna have to try and, you know, take a bad situation and make something good come out of it. I guess I can do that. I'm God after all. No, his plan A, God's plan from before the foundations of the world were told in the Bible was that he would send his son to suffer and to die and to give his life in place of ours. And so what that means is that God's redemptive purposes move forward in the world, not in spite of the bad thing that happened at the cross, but through it. The cross was itself the very means that God used to accomplish our deliverance. And so we know this is what kind of God he is. He can take even the most unjust, the most despicable act of work that has ever been done in the history of the world, and he can make that turn out for our long-term good. He can take that and somehow, we don't know how, he can somehow take it and make it turn out for the long-term good of his redemptive purposes. That's what we know. And so, If God himself can take the most twisted act of work that's ever been done, and he can fold that into his long-term redemptive purposes. If God can take even the cross, and not just work in spite of it, but actually make it serve his redemptive plan, do you think he cannot do the same exact thing with your work? Friends, what this means is that there is an incredible amount of hope for the future of our work. Because none of our work will ever be wasted by God. In his all-knowing, all-wise, all-good plan, none of your work will ever be wasted. That includes all of the great, wonderful things you've ever done. It includes all of the bad acts of work you've ever done. We have a God who can take all of that and somehow make it turn out for his redemptive purposes. And so what this means, this leads us to live with an awareness that our work here and now matters. The work that we do here and now absolutely matters. It doesn't give us a reason to sort of fold our hands and kick up our feet and, you know, engage in a kind of Christian laziness. No, what this gives us is it gives us hope and it gives us purpose for our work, knowing that everything we do, somehow God will take this and he will work it into his long-term redemptive plan. And so what it means is that right now, here in this moment, we get to partner with God in creating little pockets of new creation wherever we are. Through our work, all of a sudden we realize, okay, what we do here and now matters. It's not just, okay, I'm going to do work for my whole life and then everything I've ever accomplished, God's going to erase it. No, God will somehow take all of the work that I've done and it will somehow contribute to his long-term redemptive purposes. I don't get how that works, 
but that fills me with an enormous amount of hope and courage as I look to my work. You know, as you think maybe of your, your work as a student and you just feel how tedious and awful it feels to have to be, you know, spend your whole life as a learner, you can be assured that God will not waste any of the work that you are putting into your education. The same thing is true of anything else that you do, whether you're in college, whether you are a young professional, whether you are retired, no matter what kind of work you do, we have an enormous amount of hope and confidence for the future of our work because our work will never be wasted. So we get to partner with God in creating these little pockets of new creation wherever we are as we await the time that he returns to make all things new, to bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And so in the meantime, we live knowing that because of who he is and knowing that because of what he's done for us in his son Jesus, our work will never be wasted. Amen? As we do each week, we get to come to the communion table and we get to remember and celebrate what God has done for us in the person of Jesus. And as we come forward today, we get to specifically remember uh, the, the brutality of the cross. We get to remember how egregious and unjust it, it was, that act of work to, to murder, to execute the Son of God. And we get to come and receive his broken body and shed blood knowing that this was God's plan, that he would give up his Son for us. And that somehow throughout this most awful act of work, this is how God brings about our deliverance. This is how God brings about our salvation. And as we come and commune with Jesus at the table, we get to be filled with hope, knowing that God will never let any of our work be wasted. So as we come to the communion table, I want to invite you to take just a moment of silent confession and reflection.